thankful for that message and song just now. The Lord is King. Amen. Why should my heart be sad? Even though the wrong seems so strong sometimes, uh, God's still reigning. And He still is more powerful and He still has purposes uh, to accomplish in this world. And He does it through His churches. Amen. Through the Lord's church. And so I'm thankful for that promise. And my heart should not be sad, even though there are hard things and sad things uh, in life. Uh, we can still trust the Lord that He's always good. And uh, I'm thankful for that. Amen. If you've experienced that in your life, you would say amen too. But you're northerners from Alaska, so it's against the Constitution and bylaws to say amen in church. <laughs> hey! You know what? Constitution and bylaws are made to be broken every now and then. So <laughs> take, take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. We're going to get back to our study here in Galatians. It's been uh, quite a while. We've taken a little break uh, with all the conference and being gone and all of those things. And so it's been several weeks uh, since we were here. And so we're going to do just, I'm just going to remind you briefly of the overall context and just so that we can remember where we're supposed to be at when we get down to our text. And our text verses tonight, and mainly is verse 26 of chapter 5, but I want to read verse 25 as well along with it. The Bible says here in, in Galatians 5 and verse 25, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, like I said, it's been a while since we were here, and so I want to help remind you of the overall context of this letter to the churches of Galatia. We have to remember, first of all, that the churches of Galatia were very special to the Apostle Paul. On his missionary journeys, uh, we know from the book of Acts that he came to this region and uh, and he came more than once. The first time that he came, he was preaching the gospel. And those churches were established in this region. The second time that Paul comes back around, he's there to confirm those churches and the things of God, to set up leadership in those churches, to strengthen them and to build them up. And you can follow that uh, course in the book of Acts in Paul's first and second missionary journey. And so what we know is that this region was a, a place of marked ministry for the Apostle Paul. He had a heart for these people, uh, like he did all the other churches, certainly. And remember that Galatia, again, is not a town. Galatia was a region. That's why the letter is addressed to the churches of Galatia. There were many towns in the region. And you'll remember names like Lystra and Derby and Iconium and Antioch. All of those were... Uh, churches that the Apostle Paul established in the region of Galatia. Paul preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. These churches were established. He comes back, he reinforces the gospel of grace, he teaches them how to live in the grace of God, he teaches them the source of power for the Christian life, that it was the Spirit of God. And they were doing well as churches. They had a very good beginning. And then, behind all of that, comes along those who were called Judaizers. They were Jews, 
They were those who didn't deny Christianity. They did not deny Jesus Christ, and they didn't even deny the gospel per se, but they just said that the gospel itself is incomplete, and there's some things that needed to be added to it, namely circumcision and the keeping of the Mosaic law. And what they were telling the believers in these Galatian churches was, you aren't really Christians, and you aren't really part of the kingdom of God or the family of God because you're Gentiles who are uncircumcised, and you're not walking according to the law of Moses. And so, in order for you to be a true Christian, you have to believe in Jesus, yes, but you also need to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. And so what they were doing was imposing upon them Jewish legalism, and that's how they became known as Judaizers. Basically, they taught three things, and we see that laid out throughout this letter in Galatia. First of all, what they were saying was that Paul himself was not a legitimate authorized apostle. They had to criticize him. They had to teach that because the best way they knew to discredit what he was teaching was to discredit him. Character assassination, if you want to call it that. If they could demonstrate that he was not a true apostle at all, then they could begin to discredit what he was preaching. That, that salvation is by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And so they attacked his apostleship. That's why the content of Galatians 1 and 2 is what it is. Paul is defending his apostleship. Just go back there and let me remind you with a couple of verses here. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 11. He says, but I certify you, brethren. So he says, I'm telling you the truth. It's authorized. I promise you that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man... For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's saying the message that I have preached to you that you know well, I didn't make that up. I didn't get it from anybody else. It came from God himself. The Lord taught me that. And then skip to verse 20. He says, Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God I lie not. And so there were these accusations floating around. They were, there were those who were teaching and saying that Paul was not an authorized apostle, and therefore his message is not legitimate either. The second thing that they were teaching in these churches as they came behind the apostle Paul was they said that salvation was by circumcision and also faith. Faith alone wouldn't do it, you got to have the surgery too, essentially is what they're saying. That's why chapter 3 and chapter 4 were written to answer that argument and to show that salvation was by grace through faith apart from works. In fact, in chapter 2, in verse 16, he says, "...knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ." Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. You get to chapter 3, and you see in verse 11, he says, But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And he's referring back to the Old Testament even. 
when he's speaking there. And so that's why chapter 3 and 4, which are very doctrinal in their content, are written the way that they are, to refute this error of the Judaizers that salvation was by circumcision and also faith. The third thing that they were teaching was that they taught that the Christian life demanded complete observation of the Mosaic law. That's why chapter 5 and chapter 6 were written the way they are to answer this error. And Paul points out and he argues that the works of the flesh can never produce real spiritual fruit. The Holy Spirit of God does that. And what He produces and what comes out of the flesh, those two things look distinctly different. And the question is, what does our life look like? Is our life look like that which is produced by the Spirit of God? Or does our life more look like what the works of the flesh might be? And we read in chapter 5 what those works of the flesh are, beginning in verse 19 and going all the way through verse 21. It's an ugly list. That is a set in contrast to verse 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. They are distinctly different. Now, obviously, these Judaizers had an impact on the people on the churches of Galatia. There's no question that they had an impact. And you can see that and tell that by the, the fire that the Apostle Paul writes with in this letter to these churches. The letter to the Galatian churches is the only epistle of the Apostle Paul where he never commends anybody for anything. And if you read the other letters, Paul is always saying, has some commendation of their behavior or their knowledge of God or, the, or their good works or something. You never find that in this epistle. And there's no personal notes that he speaks of. And often in the others, you see Paul talking about how he's like a father and they're dear to him. And these people were dear to him. But you never see that in this. There's just a lot of fire and there's a lot of teaching and there's there's a uh, there's a, a sense of 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 urgency behind what the apostle paul is writing and the reason it was urgent was because the apostle paul knew that this is a false gospel this is false doctrine and it cannot be tolerated and will not be tolerated in the church of God because of the far-reaching effects and the ramifications of what will happen. That's why Paul says in chapter 1, go back there again, he says in verse 6, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another and then he says, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. What they're teaching is not another one of the same kind. It's a false gospel. And it, a perversion of the gospel, and it's going to trouble you. And so Paul says, with urgency and fervency, that this is important. And he gets on down, or he says in verse Eight, though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. That's some powerful words there. And so Paul is pretty, pretty serious and pretty urgent in his writing because it was having this effect 
on the people. It's marked out even further in chapter 3 where, where, where Paul is, is, is directly talking to the church and he says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? He calls them foolish two times in three verses. And he says, here's what I want you to answer me. He says, did you, did you uh, receive the Spirit, he says in verse 2, uh, by the works of the law? Is that how you got the Holy Spirit of God, or was it by the hearing of faith? He says, how can you be so foolish and depart from the truth? And so he calls them foolish twice. Somebody had bewitched them. Someone had turned their thinking. They were deceived. And it was having a profound effect on them. And Paul said, this can't stay. This cannot stand. And so that's a reminder of the overall context that we've been walking through through this letter. The immediate context of our text is in chapter 5, and it begins... In verse 13, where Paul says, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. So you're free in Christ. Only use not your liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. He's saying don't serve yourself, but by love serve one another. And we can read on down through verse 26 in this whole section here. Paul is talking about what salvation by grace will produce practically in a believer's life and what that actually looks like versus what the works of the flesh look like. And notice the difference. The works of the flesh start in verse 19. The works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, that's hostility, opposition, variances, quarrelings, emulations, wrath, that's angry, being uh, to, to the point of breathing hard, it's red-faced, it's, it's obviously something not under the control of the Spirit. There's strife, factions, contentions, seditions, that means disunion, it means division, heresies, envyings, that's jealousy, spite, Drunkenness, revelings, and such like. That's what the flesh looks like versus what the Spirit of God produces. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. Man, what a difference. And that's the context of our text here tonight. He's talking about what, the, what salvation by grace is going to produce practically in a believer's life and what that looks like versus what the works of the flesh will look like. The instruction that Paul gives is in verse 16. He says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So the, the instruction is to walk in the Spirit so you don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. The warning that Paul gives is in verse 17. He says, For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are the contrary, the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. 
In other words, what he's saying is, and the warning is, it's entirely possible to have your flesh in control of you, even though you're saved and you possess the Holy Spirit of God. Your flesh can still control you. He says they're contrary to the one to the other. They're constantly at war with each other so that you cannot do the things that you would. So there's a problem. But then he says the key is, verse 24, and they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. He says the key to this war is to crucify the flesh and to yield to the Holy Spirit of God. You cannot be spiritual or produce anything spiritual by keeping the law in the power of the flesh. The flesh has got to be crucified, and you've got to yield to the Spirit of God. And you don't have to remain in the tug of war, like verse 17 talks about, the flesh versus the Spirit. The Spirit gives victory to the one who will yield to His power. And we, friend, make the determination as to who we will surrender our lives to. Either the Spirit or our flesh. Romans 6.16 says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death, or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became servants of righteousness. Paul says, who ye yield yourself to is who you're a servant of. Is that going to be your flesh or is that going to be your spirit? And so then the conclusion Paul gives to all of that is verse 25. So then he says, okay, so if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. In other words, if you're saved and you live in the Spirit and the Holy Spirit of God lives in you, then let's also walk in the Spirit. You know what that word walk means? It means to keep in step or in march. It's a military word for keeping in formation and rank. In other words, he's saying, if you've got the Holy Spirit of God, if you live in the Spirit, then get in formation. Keep in step with the Holy Spirit of God. Don't get behind in the process of your sanctification. Don't get out of step with the Holy Spirit of God. Keep up with Him. That's what he's saying. So then we come to verse 26, which is our text. And Paul says, Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. So in all the context here, true Christians were being affected by the false teaching of the Judaizers who said that a person has to keep the Mosaic law in order to be saved, or at least to be spiritual even after you're saved. And that was a legalistic point of view and a legalistic spirit, and it was starting to produce pride in the believers. And so Paul says, he says, he says listen, let us not be desirous of vainglory. That phrase or that word, vainglory, it means self-conceit. And the idea is to harbor illusions about oneself 
which are empty and vain. In other words, the, the way that you think of yourself, he says, let us not be desirous of vain glory. Let's not have any illusions about ourself that is empty and vain. In other words, what he's saying is, in context of keeping the law versus salvation by grace, he's saying trying to keep the law like these Judaizers were teaching, it might look spiritual in the eyes of men, but it cannot produce anything that actually is spiritual, and especially because you've got the wrong motives behind it. An example of that being desirous of vain glory. So he's like, you can look spiritual, on the outside, and, 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 but it's not actually spiritual at all, and you've got these delusions about yourself that there's something spiritual happening here when it's not really spiritual at all, and the motives are wrong besides. An example of that would be the Pharisees themselves. In Mark chapter 7, turn over there. Mark chapter 7, verse 1 the Bible says here that, I'll let you get there, Mark 7, in verse 1, Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes, which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with, uh, with defiled, that is to say with unwashing hands, they found fault. Here they are criticizing. They're watching and they're criticizing. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they washed their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be, which they have received to hold as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels, and of the tables. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their hearts are for me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. And then he said, full well ye reject the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition. And so Jesus points out that they're hypocrites here, that you have this appearance of being spiritual and you honor me with your lips but your heart is far from me and you've got all these things that you do to make it look spiritual in matthew chapter 23 jesus addresses the heart issue and the motives in matthew 23 in verse 1 then spake jesus to the multitude and to his disciples saying the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you, observe that observe and do, but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. They're a bunch of hypocrites. They tell you to do all this stuff, but they don't even do it themselves. And then verse 4 says, and they're talking about the law, keeping the law and all their other traditions. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, 
and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost seats at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. What's the motive behind all the, quote, good things they do in looking spiritual for to be seen of men? They loved the praise. They loved the accolades. They loved the attention. And Jesus said their motives were to be seen of men. And the application, so, so we get back to what Paul is saying. He says, let us not be desirous of vainglory. The spirit of legalism always makes people self-righteous. It makes people critical and it makes them negative. And often that is a sign of pride and conceit in their own heart. Do you know it's possible for the old nature to counterfeit some of the fruit of the Spirit? But the flesh can never produce fruit of the Spirit. Does that make sense? It can mimic or mock or, or, or counterfeit some of them, but it can't produce the fruit of the Spirit. In other, words, in other words, it's this. You can look spiritual in the flesh, but it can never be sustained by the flesh. And one of the major differences between what is spirit and what is flesh is this right here, being desirous of vainglory. When the Spirit of God is producing His fruit in the life of a believer, what is the fruit? It is love, it is joy, it is peace, it is long-suffering, it's gentleness, it's goodness, it's faith. When the Spirit of God is producing that in the life of a believer, God gets the glory for that, and the Christian isn't even conscious of his spirituality. He's just living for the Lord. I just want to please God. I just want to follow the Lord. And the Spirit of God begins to produce all these things in his life, and it blesses other people. And he doesn't even, he's not even conscious of this, quote, spirituality, because the Spirit of God is, who, is the one producing it in his life. He just wants to please the Lord. But when it's the flesh, and the flesh can counterfeit some of those things, and the flesh can come across as spiritual, all lovey and full of joy, almost to the point of being fake, you know? When the flesh is doing that, the person is inwardly proud of himself, especially for the compliments he receives of others. He loves that attention. Oh, you're doing such a good job. I just appreciate what you've done. I just appreciate all that you do around here. Loving the accolades. Man, that was a good message. Things like that. And inwardly, when it's the flesh, he's proud. Proud of himself. Loves the attention. He loves that people think him to be this way. He thinks himself to be spiritual too. And so Paul says, mm -mm, that's not the Holy Spirit of God. 
When the Spirit of God is producing fruit in you, everything is for the praise of the Lord. It just comes out because the Spirit of God is doing that. And the believer just wants to please the Lord and he's not even conscious of it. So Paul says, let us not be desirous of vain glory. That's flesh. But how is that manifested? That one might be that way. That one has self-conceit. That's what the word vainglory means. Let's not be desirous of vainglory. Don't be self-conceited. Don't harbor illusions about ourselves. That's empty or vain. But how is that manifested? Go back to Galatians chapter 5, and I want you to note what Paul makes note of here. In verse 26, he says, Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. So how is it manifested that one might be this way? He says, well, there's going to be this provoking one another. You say, well, doesn't the Bible say in Hebrews 10, 24 that we're to consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. It does say that. But that word provoke in Hebrews 10, 24, it means to incite, to motivate to good. It's like, it's like accountability. It's like encouragement to incite others to, to love and to good works. It's a different word that Paul uses here in verse 26. The word here, to provoke, Provoking one another, it means to call forth to oneself, to challenge, to irritate. And it has the idea of those who would call one out to a duel. So you like, you know, like in the Old West, you got their six shooters on their hip, and you got a beef with somebody else. He's like, I'm calling you out. And the two go out in the street, and there's a duel. Or like maybe the old English duels, you know, where they would get their single-shot musket pistol, whatever you call that, and they would stand back to back, walk ten paces, and they would walk, and then they would turn and fire. It's to call one out, to challenge. That's the idea here. He says provoking one another. What Paul is describing here is a person who has a challenging spirit to them all the time, rather than a cooperative spirit. You follow what he's saying here? He said, let's not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another. He, when, it, when, when it's the Spirit of God who is controlling, when, when, when people are under the control of the Spirit of God, there would be a unity of heart and mind in the body that says, we've got the same goal. We've got the same desire. All we want to do is exalt Jesus Christ and give Him glory and serve the Lord. That's all we want to do in our heart and our mind is unified together for the same purpose. This is a different person who has a challenging spirit to them all the time rather than a cooperative spirit. People who seem to have controversy around them all the time or people who seem to be challenging and to be surrounded by negativity, it's often an indicator of pride in their heart. Challenging everything. Nothing's good enough. 
Nothing is good unless I'm the one who's got the idea or I'm the one who's doing it. You got to be critical, got to find fault, got to be negative. That challenging attitude, that challenging spirit. Paul says that is a manifestation of the flesh. That's exactly what the Judaizers were doing. They came behind the Apostle Paul and him teaching and preaching the gospel, and they were challenging his apostolic authority. They were challenging the message. They were teaching a false gospel. And it's produced or motivated from the flesh, not from a spirit that wants to exalt Jesus Christ. And then he mentions this. He says, envying one another. That word envying means simply jealousy. The challenging spirit is often rooted in this right here. Jealousy. Maybe jealous of something. Maybe it's attention that other people get and they don't. Maybe it's power and control that they want, but they don't have. Maybe it's something else. Whatever it is, the Bible says that an envious heart or an envious spirit is something that stirs up strife and every evil work. Envy is that which is to be laid aside because envy is of the flesh. Paul even says it in verse, what does he say? Verse 20, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings. There it is. It's a work of the flesh. Turn with me over to James chapter 3. I'm just about done here. James chapter 3. And he says in verse 13, James 3.13, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? So it's a question. Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth, this wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above, it's first pure, then peaceable, and gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. For, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Man, that sounds a lot like the fruit of the Spirit, doesn't it? Wisdom that's from above. It's peaceable. It's gentle. It's easy to be entreated. When there's a spirit of challenge, that provoking, maybe rooted in jealousy, oftentimes... Those kinds of people, they're surrounded by controversy. They're surrounded by negativity. They're critical. 
in their heart and in their spirit. That's not the Spirit of God. And we can wrap it all up in all kinds of pretty wrapping paper that sounds spiritual, but the flesh can counterfeit. But it cannot sustain. 1 Peter 1, or 2 verse 1 says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speaking. <coughs> It's something that the flesh produces. So the conclusion that Paul makes here as he's writing to these churches of Galatians, the Judaizers, they were anxious for attention. They wanted recognition from others. They wanted praise. All of that was vainglory. That leads to a spirit of competition, which leads to division. And fruit... Spiritual fruit cannot grow in that environment. That's what the Spirit of God produces. He produces peace. And you know what? The flesh, the flesh produces works, right? There's a difference between works and fruit. Works is a life of labor. That's something that's active. The Spirit produces fruit. That's something that's passive. Fruit is a natural result of abiding in the vine. John chapter 15. It's my Father's will that you bear much fruit. How do you bear fruit? If you abide in me and I in you. It says you abide in the vine. You abide in the vine and you'll produce fruit. Do you know that the fruit branch never ever struggles to produce its fruit? The branch, all it does is stay connected to the vine. And it's connected to the vine, that, being connected to the vine that allows the life of the vine to begin to flow through it, and the fruit is automatically produced on the branch. In the life of a believer, it's the same way. You abide in Christ. How do you abide in Christ? You've got to abide in His Word. You've got to line your life up with His Word. You've got to be obedient to it. You abide in Christ in the Spirit will always produce fruit that makes us look more and more like Jesus Christ. Amen. When Christians are proud and conceited, it's definitely going to affect their relationships with other Christians. But when Christians are walking in the Spirit, and we have a unified heart with the same goal and the same mind, you know what it's going to produce? Love, joy, peace among the people of God. Isn't that what we want? Is that what we desire? Then Paul says, let's walk in the Spirit, and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And if you live in the Spirit, let's keep up with the Spirit. Let's walk in Him. Amen? This passage, chapter 5, runs into chapter 6. There's no chapter divisions when Paul wrote this. And so there's more things that Paul is going to bring out here that will reflect whether or not we're walking in the Spirit or whether our flesh is controlling us. And so we'll consider those things as we get to them. But let's ask the Lord to help us. Lord, help me to yield to You, yield to Your Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to crucify this old flesh. And Lord, may You be the one to receive glory in Your church and in my life. Amen? Amen. You can say amen. It's okay.
We'll change the Constitution and bylaws. You're allowed to do it. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for its instruction that all Scripture is profitable for us, for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to have a heart and a mind that receives the word of God and truth. And Lord, that our heart and our mind would be, Lord, I want you to receive glory out of my life. I want you to have the preeminence in all things. I want this flesh crucified. Lord, I yield myself to you, to your spirit. Lord, I'm willing for you to change me in these areas of my life uh, so that I will be more and more like Jesus Christ. And there's this element of joy and peace that comes in our life when we surrender and when we yield. Lord, I don't know how you may have used the word tonight and spoken to people's hearts. I do not know, but Lord, I know that your word is always profitable for us. And I pray that there would be a heart in your people to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.